when you look down underneath the hood and you review the literature, it's really easy actually to see that organizations that are able to have more curiosity-led people in them innovate faster because they support learning and they support the failure that comes with experimentation. They work better together because they have strong connections that come from empathetic openness and psychological safety that people have together, which also leads to less conflict, and they're more resilient. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Shannon Minifee. Shannon's the CEO at Box of Crayons. It's a learning and development company based in Toronto that creates and delivers practical learning experiences that unleash the power of curiosity to create connected and engaged company cultures. In our conversation, Shannon and I are talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is curiosity. Her company published a very interesting paper titled From Troublemaker to Changemaker, How to Harness Curiosity to Build Resilience and Innovation. So we start by digging into why curious people, those who challenge assumptions and want to know the why behind the how, are often considered troublemakers within organizations. And we dive into why advice and assumptions are killing your company as well as your sales team. We also get into why if your organization is more advice-driven than curiosity-led, you are missing valuable opportunities to become more innovative, more resilient, and more successful which are all traits that successful sales teams need. We also explore the seven business outcomes that are triggered by curiosity and how these apply to sales leaders and salespeople. So we get into all that and much, much more. But before we get to Shannon, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you could give us your feedback about how we're doing and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. So thank you. Okay, let's jump into it. Shannon, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks for having me. A pleasure to have you here. And yeah, as we were talking before we started recording is, is uh, gosh, we'd sort of lined you up to come on the show. And then in the midst of COVID, you had a, a child. I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you were, that all went okay. You were able to have family with you and so on when you delivered. Yeah. My, my husband was able to be with me when I delivered. And because of when my son was born, um, numbers were low enough that actually a lot of my family, some of my family was able to actually meet him before going back into stay at home orders and all of the fun stuff that the winter season brought. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had a little, it was a little blessing, the window of time in which he was born for sure. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, I gotta think about it. That's gotta be strange, you know. <laughs> a baby's growing up the first year, everybody they see has a mask on. Yeah, yeah. And babies respond so much to to faces. Faces, um, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely um he's not he's less uh comfortable around new people and new faces than my other son is. Uh because right. he's just not known very many faces in his short life. He's eleven months now and he he knows the faces of about five people. So wow. that's that's heartbreaking for my mom. <laughs> but well, yeah. He'll get well, used sure. to her. <laughs> well I was just thinking that in the context of you know, we sort of relocated our base of operations from New York to San Diego during during COVID. It had been planned in advance. It just happened to happen during during COVID. And, yeah, I was getting all new doctors and so on. And I've got, like, yeah, 
a handful of doctors now <laughs> that I've been seeing for a year and a half. I couldn't recognize them on the street if I ran into them because every time right. we see them, they have masks. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a strange world. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully it will become less strange. Um, Hey, actually, I hadn't thought about that in the context of what we're going to talk about, because, you know, we've had your colleague, Michael Bungay-Stan, you're on the show, I don't know, three times, I think, maybe. Um, and I think, gosh, now we get the person on the show who does all the work. So, <laughs> I, not, No, that's not true. There's a, there's a whole team of us up here that, that, that does all the work. I know. Just, I was just kidding. I was, I was just, uh, just giving him a hard time. Yeah. So yeah. tell us about Box of Crayons and what, the work you guys do. Yeah. So we're a learning and development company that helps organizations transform from being advice-driven to curiosity-led. And what that means is that organizations come to us when they have identified a need for their, for their people, for their culture, to be more driven by a desire to be open to learning, to supporting each other in discovery, to you know, reducing conflict by considering other perspectives, um, to be able to develop their people by creating space for their people to articulate, um, and wrestle with their, their challenges and take accountability for, for the challenges that they, that they identify. Um, so when those are some of the sort of behavioral Mm -hmm. pain points that, that clients come to us with, and then they partner with us and we design and deliver programs that help, individuals shift their behaviors around being more curiosity led. And then that in turn helps transform the way the organization relates to one another and how they approach innovation and um, communication and uh, development of their people. So (laughs) when I was reading this white paper that you've written called from troublemaker to change maker, how to harness curiosity to build resilience and innovation. And as I was going through that and you talk about, my transforming from advice-led to curiosity-led, I mean, that's that's one of the real problems that exists in many sales organizations is that uh, there's a dearth of curiosity about the people they're selling to. Yep. Have you worked specifically with sales organizations? We have worked specifically with sales organizations, and you're absolutely right, Um that is the that is the dearth that that um, that a couple of our clients have brought to us, looking for us to help remedy. Yeah, I mean, and we'll get into this because it's it's sort of I think what's happened over the span of several decades that that I've experienced firsthand is that yeah, we've we've migrated to a time where we're sort of trying to squelch curiosity. The, the curious do seem to be troublemakers, those that question things. And I just wondering sort of background, why, why do we think that's happened? You know, when we've had all this disruption in technology and, and seemingly giving people more freedom and more tools to, to be curious. Yeah. We seem to be less curious and, you know, Tom Nichols had written about this in the death of expertise is, is, you know, we just, we become suspicious of it and, you know, we seem to have our minds made up more. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, Ian Leslie, I think it was, uh, in his writing about curiosity lands on a similar conclusion as well, which is that sort of in the age of just Googling the answer to anything, the amount of time we sit, uh, contemplating, uh, a mystery or, uh, like, like sitting in, in deep thinking and, uh, 
you know, investigation of something has been reduced dramatically. And he makes this good point that, you know, anything is Googleable to find the answer. But the thing that Google can't tell you is what question to ask. Mm-hmm. And so part of what you're doing when you're being curious, when you know when you're sort of following that desire to know something is you're discovering what the better question is that gets you to that next level of understanding. Um, the the trouble we said about the troublemaker tendency is, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about it exactly how you, uh, or, you know, we'd thought about it, but hadn't articulated in exactly the same way in the white paper, this idea that we don't, you don't want people asking too many questions. Um, and that, but I think that's right. I mean, it's, it can be, it can feel disruptive. You know, we've decided on this thing, we're moving forward, I've, you know, I have the accountability for this decision I've made. And so what's the purpose of asking other people what they think, <laughs> yeah. being open to right, <laughs> that just, just going to slow things down. And I'll, <laughs> I'll share um, really candidly with you that um, I really recently fell, you know, prey to that myself. So, and one of my, our, my colleagues here at Box of Crayons, Chantel Thorne, who is our director of program development, um, sent me a really good uh, note. She's an expert in uh, organizational change. And Mm -hmm. our our challenge that we had is just we were changing a simple um, policy around how we work with some of our key resources. And it's a, it was a good decision to make the decision makes all the sense for the business. And I and some of my colleagues working on the communication of that change underestimated what that change would mean to the people on the other side. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. mattered in the end more was how the change was communicated, which is to say, without pausing to be curious longer about right. how that would land for other people. And, you know, Chantel has come forward and said, hey, let me help out with this. Um, I've mm-hmm. got a couple of points along the way where asking some more questions and involving more people in the leadership of that change would have made a huge difference. Um, so, yeah, there, I definitely I, I hear that around, oh, you know, as soon as I open the, the field to people to ask questions, it's going to delay what we want to get done. And there's a sense it slows things down. Um, right. The other thing we identified in the white paper was just that curiosity is typically viewed in a more limited scope around, um, you know, not just a desire to know something, but sort of the curiosity killed the cat kind of desire. So right. uh, I want to, you know, like get into something. It's like mischief um, driven. <laughs> um, and so, you know, not a lot of senior leaders maybe want people to spend, think that they want to spend, have their people spend their time being curious like that. And that's why it was really important for us to rearticulate that for us, rather than curiosity being simply a desire to know something, we want the, the folks who work with, the organizations we work with, to recognize changemaker curiosity as a behavior. Um, and so th- that be curious, when we say be curious, in many ways, that's an imperative to be present for other people. And to the parts of your own thinking that you haven't noticed or you may want to deny. So it's not just a desire to know something. It's really relationship based and it's about openness and and vulnerability. It's a behavior. Well, I think, yeah, I I, see, I, I spin curious a little bit differently as, as I, great. I think it's to me, Mm -hmm. not necessarily to the rest of the world. 
it's curiosity is, is the desire to understand something. Nice. And and uh, you'd use the word no, and I'm not picking on that, but it's. I think that this is this is the issue that I see and have talked a lot of, about it a lot here and actually writing about it in my new book is is we stop at knowing. Mm-hmm. We stop gathering information. We can Google something. We can learn a fact. But I think to the point that you brought before is we then don't take it a step further to make sure we really understand it. Right. And, and I think this is, and you address this in the white paper, and I think this is a problem I see. Certainly I'll talk from the sales perspective is we arm our sellers. We enable our sellers with playbooks and questions to ask and so on, but we don't train them to go further, right? They, they take things at face value as opposed to continuing to ask questions. So they, right. we have this, what I call a gap you know, between knowing and understanding. Yeah. And yeah. that's, you bridge that with curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I've been thinking a lot. I've, I've got my own sort of agenda here today, Andy, because oh, I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> We've been thinking a lot about client centricity uh, as an organization and what, what client centricity means for Box of Crayons and something I've been thinking about. Um, and I've been thinking about the way in which curiosity is a way, it's a way of being other directed mm-hmm. because you're placing the client need, understanding the client need at the center rather than your own sort of product that you're selling at, at the center. Um, and so right. it's, a, it's a powerful form of client centricity. So I like the way that you just phrase that, that the, um, there's something sort of cursory about just thinking, okay, I, I, I heard that so I know it, as right. opposed to the, explore, the time and the question asking and the exploration it takes to, to more deeply understand something. Well, and it, it aligns, right, with what you just said is, is that, Again, one of the things I address in my new book is, is, and this is not an issue just purely of modern sellers, this has been one forever, is that you know, we train sellers to go out and pitch a product, right? Mm-hmm. So their job, your job nominally is go sell a product. Mm-hmm. But is that really your job? Because what you're doing is you're, you may know certain things about the customer, but you're basically self-centered at that point, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm just trying to sell my product right. as opposed to making sure I really understand you know, what are the most important things to the buyer, right? In terms of challenges they have or most important things in terms of the outcomes they want to achieve. And when I understand those, then my ability to work with them is other-centric to help them come to, hopefully it would be the best conclusion for them. Yeah, that's enhanced. Whereas if I'm just Sarah saying, yeah, I know what you need, <laughs> And here it is. Yeah. Then it's completely different. It's not, there's no curiosity involved in that at all. Right. And you feel that when you're on the other side of that. Absolutely. Oh, sure. Right. Um, I, because I know you have a a book coming out soon with page two. I think um, Phil Jones is another page two author. Um, In his book, Exactly What to Say, I think it was, he talked Mm -hmm. about, he describes sales as being about about earning the right to make a recommendation. I think Phil yes. said that. Maybe you would know the source. Maybe it's somebody else. But earning the right to make a recommendation. And so it really is about relationship and trust, but also demonstrated understanding that you, you've you grasped what the real challenge is. And that can't be done through some cursory playbook questions that you ask. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm wondering, at sort of a you know, corporate level, mm-hmm. uh, and you say, you know, quoting from the, the paper, you write that 
you know, companies invest in other forms of learning and development, but really not investing in developing curiosity. And so sort of interest is how do you do that? How do you, how do you develop, you know, the, the, <laughs> the curious gene, if you will, uh, within individuals or increase their CQ as, as you know, one researcher applied to it? Yeah. So one of the sort of stances that we're taking around this is that like a lot of the curiosity research centers around this debate about whether curiosity is a state or a trait in individuals. So I'm either either a trait I have or it's a state I'm in. Um, And I think that one of the insights that Francesca Gino and others who are Mm -hmm. working in particular on the application of curiosity or the impacts rather of curiosity in organizations in particular, rather than in uh, education or, you know, just in society. One of the insights there is that by creating an environment, so in other words, a larger organizational state in which um, curiosity is cultivated and will thrive, your organization will get better results. So what I mean when we say organizations invest in other kinds of learning and development is that, you know, people can say, I think it's on its face, it seems hard to argue that curiosity is good for your business. But when you look down underneath the hood and you look at and you review the literature, it's really easy actually to see that organizations that are able to have more curiosity-led people in them innovate faster because they support learning and they support the failure that comes with experimentation. They work better together because they have strong connections that come from uh, empathetic openness and psychological safety that people have together, which also leads Mm -hmm. to less conflict. Mm -hmm. They're more engaged because they bring more ideas and so they work harder, which leads to more better results and back to innovation. And they're more resilient. So the people in them are more resilient as individuals, but so is the organization uh, better able to evolve and you know pivot. So again, back to innovation. So the way that, that we work with organizations starts really at that individual level. So our programs are all about how do we help people recognize that their advice monster, which is this key, and I know you know all about mm-hmm. the advice monster because right, you said right. Michael's been on the show three times. Right, right. We've talked about this. Yes. Yeah. So, so the um, the the content of of Michael's coaching habit book is is the uh, bulk of of the content at the center of the programs that we design and deliver, and what we're trying to do is counter really two beliefs in individuals. So the two beliefs we encounter are that. The belief that my advice is helpful, and we don't think it mm-hmm. usually is. And secondly, right. the belief that it's my job to give advice and provide answers. Right. So most of the, the folks in our programs would think their advice is helpful and they think it's their job to give advice. And thinking back about the organizational state, we can, we can and we do in our programs help them to see that creating space to help others realize what their challenges are and asking mm-hmm. the right questions to drive them understanding those challenges is actually more helpful than giving advice and that their job to develop people is to create that space and ask those questions rather to give advice. So to empower right. people, but often folks in organizations will be up against an internal culture that says on the one hand, yeah, it's your job to develop people and, you know, ask, let them try and fail and ask questions and, you know, follow, do all that stuff. And then on the other hand, the 
there, there is an actual expectation that leaders demonstrate that they have all the answers on a regular basis. So sometimes there's that tension, um, sort of between <laughs> what the organization all the time. Yeah. 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 Says about themselves and, and what well, the organization they, actually is. Right. And the hard thing for, for leaders, cause again, we talk about a lot on the show is, is we don't within sales generally mm-hmm. leaders, frontline managers aren't enabled with the tools and, the training they need to even do sort of the, the basics of what you just talked about, which is instead of defaulting. And so that's why they default to advice giving and, mm-hmm. and conformity, let's say, mm-hmm. because it's, that's easier. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they've, on one hand, they haven't been taught, you know, let's say a methodology like Michael's for coaching, which helps people identify what their challenges are and, and identify how to solve it. Um, yeah, instead, that's like, yeah, we've got a number to hit. Do this, do that. Um, yep. And and what we see is that in the sales landscape, sort of increasing amounts of of emphasis on conformity and compliance to process, right? Rather than let people experiment. And as you quote in the paper from Professor Gino, as I think the quote was, you know, companies say they treasure inquisitive minds. In fact, most stifle curiosity fearing it will increase risk and inefficiency. Yeah. But I think there's another thing is they leaders just don't want to be questioned. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's an element of power in there as well, which is, is to me is very destructive. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that part of um, curiosity. You know, when I talk about it as an imperative to be present to your own thinking and your own, a behavior that you might want to deny to sort of sit in, huh, why, why am I responding that way? Uh, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's a call for, for leaders and for everyone to be curious. Like, what is it that I'm doing when I'm doing what I'm doing <laughs> to quote another <laughs> of, of my colleagues, um, family members who, who says that a lot, it's a great saying. Uh, so t- yeah. how do you, how do you sit there and wonder what's, what's motivating you, what biases, what fears? I mean, this is the kind of thing I think Michael got into in the last conversation with you about, you know, what is that DNA behind my advice monster that mm-hmm. fears that I'm not, I can't show that I'm as good or better than other people. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, I promise like the programs aren't this dark. (laughs) Yeah, Um, they're like, like we're, we're known for having really fun, um, programs, (laughs) but there, but there's a, but you know, but you need kind of a, there has to be something at stake there. And I think you sort of, you've nailed what's at stake, Andy, right. Which is like, that's hard for leaders because there's this, these dark aspects of power. Um, yeah. Giving up control. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, uh, there's another article from Francesca Gino that was in the Harvard Business Review a few years ago about let your workers rebel and writing about the need for companies to encourage uh, constructive nonconformity, mm-hmm. you know, to give people more autonomy and agency to, to be curious, to experiment in order to improve. Mm-hmm. Whereas, as you talk about and point out in the, the papers, is that curiosity and and the autonomy are viewed with suspicion oftentimes. Yeah. Or like it's separated out from the regular way that people do their job. Like part of what we're trying to cultivate in people is the ability for curiosity to be a habit so that, you know, when I'm quote, when I'm being 
coach-like and curious. I'm not designated, it's not dedicated to a one hour conversation and I'm going to show up that way and ask questions. And I'm going to spend the whole Mm -hmm. rest of my seven or eight hours of my day being a different way. Um, what we're trying to do is have people make curiosity a habit so that every opportunity, every interaction is an opportunity to be more coach-like. So I think that what some of those organizations do when they're well-meaning, um, with things like, uh, like the 20% time and things like Mm -hmm. that. So, Oh, you can spend one day a week dreaming or doing that other doing, you know, the quote unquote creative or or curious work. They, it, it separates it from all the other opportunities, all and interactions all day long to be more, to be curious. It's not curiosity. Isn't something you're just over here doing 20% of the time. No, um, being coach like isn't something you're over here doing 20% of the time, especially, you know, we're talking about if we want to talk about sales in particular, um, we, we worked with a big research and advisory firm years ago that had identified a huge client retention problem. And when our client who ended us up, um, when our buyer ended up hiring us, um, looked into that, he went around and he, he looked at the, um, the advisors who had high client retention and dug into, you know, what is it about the way that you run those advisory calls? What are you doing? And he discovered that they had the ability to be more coach-like. They were more thinking partners to their clients Mm -hmm. than the other people were. So he helped to identify what I need is for, just to scale um, and operationalize curiosity as a behavior in this firm. And so we went in and we um, trained all of those advisors to approach those calls, really, really asking the questions that help them dig down and understand what the real challenge is and create that space for their client to, you know, come to a realization or ask another question that they hadn't asked before. Um, and when they weren't doing that, they were, they were jumping to, to advice and, uh, solutions before they'd identified what the real problem was. And they saw a huge, um, rise in retention from Mm -hmm. the kind of mid 70 level to, to 80% and above. So it was great. Yeah. I mean, and you raise an interesting point, which is, is that if you're a sales manager and you're listening to this, the show and you listen to this episode mm-hmm. is from a mindset perspective, are you approaching coaching calls or coaching sessions with, with people that work for you from a position of curiosity or as you said, a position of advice. Right. And polar opposites are like opposite ends of the, the spectrum from each other. I mean, similar if you're dealing with your, your clients, your existing clients and yeah, you have retention issues are you coming in and advising them on uh, yeah, how to better use your product to get more out of it? Or are you leading with your curiosity to find out what are the challenges and the blockers to increase usage of your product that then can stimulate a conversation? And it's that you call it a state. I, I sort of call it a mindset. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. Where do you, where do you sit between being curious and incurious? Yeah. And yeah, we're never perfect, hundred percent curious, but you do want to strive to be more that direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think definitely the organizations we work with are the, who are attempting big strategic culture change are trying to change the state of their organization so mm-hmm. that it can support curious behaviors. And, but I agree with you in individuals, it's a mindset shift that supports a shift in behavior. Yeah. And you talked about psychological safety before is, 
certainly there are organizations where, yeah, they don't encourage questioning. And I, I write about in my book is I was fortunate, I guess, to work for bosses that tolerated me because I, <laughs> I question everything. That's just what I've, I've always done. I'd like to say, you know, maybe it's because I was, you know, child of the 60s or something where, you know, question authority was the watchword. Right. But but I've always sort of approached it that way is that, you know, I could ask somebody a question and I could get an answer. And to me, the, my first response is, well, there's got to be more here. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just taking it face value. Um, and so I wanted to sort of follow up with that is to talk about in the paper, you talk about sort of seven business outcomes that curiosity unleashes. And I, the first one was interest, introspective intelligence, which, yeah, you, based on intellectual humility. And I think this is really one of the keys in my mind of curiosity is mm-hmm. just this willingness to admit that you don't know everything. Yep. That's it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's hard for some people. Yeah, it's hard for me. It's hard for it's hard for all people, I think, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we want to be considered, I guess, as experts, but it's it's if you want to keep learning, is you have to said have that that intellectual humility to and self awareness to have it to say, yeah, there's something I don't understand here. Right. Yeah. And as a leader, it's particularly difficult because you want to strike the balance between um, have like having that humility and, and, and re- the re- using the resources around you, like all the brilliant people around you. It's not about you having the answers. It's about you supporting and empowering other people, but always feeling like you have to strike the balance between that and, um, and the sense that you are, that you're leading as well, somehow yeah, <laughs> in your own thinking. <laughs> well, but I think even as an individual salesperson, you're in a leadership position with your buyers Yes. And, and the intellectual humility, humility goes a long ways in demonstrating that because you compare that with pretending that or feeling like you need to pretend that you have all the answers mm-hmm. is, is a default mode for a lot of salespeople because yep. they're afraid that they'll be shown to be less than in the eyes of the buyers if they don't have answers to questions. And... Yeah, I've rarely felt that in my career. I always because I make because I start off being lucky in the people I was calling on that calling on entrepreneurs that built good sized businesses who are CEOs of these companies and and just being curious, just keep asking questions. And as long as it looked like I was sincere in my effort to to gain information, gain understanding, they would spend as much time with me almost as I wanted. Yeah. And help me get smarter about their business. Um, and so I, I think as a salesperson in particular is, but in general, just in your career is people say there's no such thing as a dumb question, but I mean, along that line is, is if you ask sincere, interesting questions, people won't care that you don't have the answers. They, they, what they care about is that you're trying to get the answer. Right. Absolutely. And people love engaging with curious people. Like you, you know, you walk away from people who have asked you genuine, authentic questions that you Mm -hmm. can tell are motivated by a desire to understand. You walk away with just a solid sense that of just how, um, how centered you were for them in in that interaction. Like they're not thinking about themselves at all. 
when they're right. being really curious about you. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, thinking about relationship in, in selling. It's a, yeah. it's a great way for your client to leave the interaction. If every interaction is a chance for you to build trust and build relationship, it's a great way for them to leave that interaction, to feel just how invested you are in understanding what's going on for them and to, and to really pinpoint the challenges. Right. And you would then also make yourself more interesting to them by being interested in what they're interested in. Yep. And you say another one of the business outcomes is empathetic openness and how, you know, this ability to, to be open to somebody else without, and to receive their, their answers without judgment, listen without judgment. Yep. Um, I like the the phrase you use is, you know, curiosity slows down the rush to judgment. Yeah. And this is, that's why I think it's a, an interesting state, you say, necessarily in, ter- in terms of instead of a trait, is, yeah, being in the moment, being present, listening to understand, but then, yeah, building a pause in so your curiosity can be deployed. Yeah. It's also where I think um, curiosity has the ability to like in terms of curiosity having the ability to increase your capacity for empathy it's where that aspect of curiosity is not just about like you put it really well Andy not a desire to know something but to understand something so I think in that empathetic openness you are really relinquishing the desire to you know, line up your perception of something with someone else's perception to, to validate theirs against yours. Mm-hmm. So, th- you know, it, it's that openness of, oh, okay, you, that perspective or that perception um, is is right because it's yours. And so curiosity becomes a sort of antidote to bias, to assumptions I might make about what motivates other people's thinking and behavior. It's a way of reminding uh, yourself just how embedded you are in your own perception and experience and how uh, subjective that really is. Yeah. Oh, and you talk about empathy in particular, right? Because the way empathy is presented to most sellers when they're being trained and so on is it's, you know, putting yourself in another person's shoes and it's, and it's like, okay, mm-hmm. but there's an assumption that you understand what it's like to be in their shoes. Yeah. And for me, empathy is more about deploying your curiosity to understand not how someone feels, but to understand why they feel the way they do. Cause when you have that, why then you have the ability to understand, okay, what's the challenges they face and what are the potential outcomes that would be beneficial to them? Yeah. Yep. That's right. So that why becomes very important, sort of the cognitive empathy thing. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, and we talked about meaningful connections was one of the outcomes you talked about. We just sort of touched on that. Um, you know, this. So spend a second talk about psychological safety because this is oftentimes is used as I don't know, say it's, it's looked down on. Let's say people sort of hear that term and think, oh, coddling people. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those terms that's been so overused, it, it, it almost right. doesn't mean anything anymore. Right, but, it's, but it has a specific use here. And, and why don't you explain that? Because it's not about coddling. No, it's not about coddling. So when I um, am thinking about or using the term psychological safety, I mean really specifically, um, I think it's Amy Edmondson's, uh, I think she kind of owns the, the definition here. It's certainly her work. Um, It is the belief that I can share opinions and ideas 
and not be, uh, you know, persecuted for, for doing that. Right. So that is, I do hear the term psychological safety used in a lot looser and different ways <laughs> yeah. to mean in like general how protecting what, people from failure. Yeah. Protecting people from failure or, um, you know, I, I, people at work don't like me. I don't feel psychologically safe mm-hmm. or my colleague thought my presentation sucked. I'm not psychologically safe. And that, and it's not, mm-hmm. it, it kind of erodes the, the real insight here, which is, have you created an organization in which people can share an idea that's might be contrary to their leaders or their colleagues idea? And there, there won't be punitive action because of that. Right. Yeah. So is it yeah, safe for them to do that? And so when we talk about meaningful connections, what you know we're talking about here is that because people have part of you know the the model when we're looking at this is the way in which these individual behaviors create capabilities for teams working together, which then lead to the organizational results, uh, Mm -hmm. like resilience and innovation. So looking at uh, psychological safety, for sure, if you have um, folks that are connecting over sharing ideas, disagreeing, but knowing it's safe to disagree, because people counter and meet those differing perspectives with openness to those Mm -hmm. other perspectives. And that creates a culture in which people feel psychologically safe to contribute ideas that might at first blush be unpopular or be contrary to the prevailing opinion or to, you know, the the decision that has has basically been made. Yeah. Well, we work in environments that are inherently more collaborative these days. Yeah. Uh, And I just, had interviewed uh, Anne Latham for the show, had written a book called Uncommon Clarity. And I love what she, she read, I don't know if it was her term or she just used it in the book, but redefined knowledge workers as interaction workers. Mm, right? Because so much of our job is involved in interacting with other people, working through other people to get our job done. Yeah. And it's, you know, why some people think collaboration is one of the top work skills that people need to have these days. But Yes, this is a sales show. We bring it back to sales is, is selling to a buyer is sort of the ultimate form of collaboration, both with your team internally, working with the buyer and the stakeholders on that side. Yeah, abs- like absolutely it is, right? Like you're trying to understand on their side, who are all the people who need to be involved in the decision? Like first, who are all the people who have a stake in solving this problem? How do they view the problem? How does this challenge show up for them? How, who are all the decision makers involved in, in this, in the decision to, to engage and buy your product, buy your program. And, and then, uh, yes, as that point of contact and of escalation is the key account manager, how do you bring all the people in the organization around you to, to service the the client who has managed to <laughs> collaborate with you and with all the folks on their side to to make that decision. Well, it's it's a matter of sort of perspective, I think, with with the uh, fact that you're working with someone as opposed to, you know, I always say sales is something you do with a buyer, not something you do to them, because we always talk about selling to somebody. Um, yes, we need like another another verb, <laughs> maybe other than selling. Yeah, this is yeah clearly something we do with with the buyer. Uh, but that's, yeah, not going to go very far if they're, you're not creating environments where people can collaborate. 
Right. And so as a seller, you sort of have, you have to do that. You have to think about, uh, you know, what is the environment you're creating, the experience you're creating for the buyer? Yeah. Yeah. I like, I love that you pointed out, like we need a different word for that. I definitely came into, so I started with um, working at Box of Crayons almost six years ago. And when I came on, I was working very part-time doing book promotion. And um, at that time we needed, Box of Crayons needed its first salesperson. And Michael, our um, founder and then CEO asked if I was interested in being a salesperson. And I was like, okay, okay sure. Um, but I was doing it very part-time and I was doing my doctorate in English literature. So I had this whole oh, idea English of kind lips. of death of a salesman. I, I just had a very <laughs> <laughs> narrow sense of what selling right. was. And, uh, and so did the, the, you know, the, the test that I went through just to see what my, my capacity was for being a salesperson. Um, I came out on the other side of like disc and all of these other kinds of things saying, oh, okay, Shannon's interested in like aesthetics and values and not that money driven, probably actually mm-hmm. she shouldn't be a salesperson, um, in the sort of crude way that, that you think about sales. But, um, right. what I realized once I started selling right away was first of all, that selling Thoreau to 18 year olds is way harder than selling great <laughs> coaching programs to leaders in HR and learning and development who that's really true. care about their people. <laughs> that's, probably, so that's probably true. It's, it's yeah. totally true. But also yeah. that when I was teaching literature, what, what I was trying to do was have, have the, the student connect with an idea. I wasn't trying to sell them my point of view on, on a on a, you know, a piece of work. I was trying to figure out how do you connect to this idea or to some of the ideas in this text? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a way more, I mean, it's not exactly what's happening when in a sales conversation, but it is much more collaborative like that. Like you're saying, it's like, what, what do you see of yourself and your challenge in what we have to offer? And, you know, what, like what, what can our organization do to support the the need that you've expressed on the other side? And like, where mm-hmm. do we meet across that idea? We have this idea, a box of crayons, about what curiosity can do for your organization, and how do we how do we find a way to to meet there if if meeting there makes sense for us? It's right. it, yeah. Well, last point I want to cover is, and you had alluded to it earlier. You talk about change maker curiosity. So explain mm-hmm. what change maker curiosity is. Changemaker curiosity is, you know, for us, again, it's a a stance toward what is unknown that is open and vulnerable. So instead of thinking about curiosity in this sort of troublemaker way of Mm -hmm. mischief making, I just need to go and discover this thing. Uh, I need to break this rule just because I was told not to. I need to see what's so on the other side of that door. With changemaker curiosity, it's really about a behavior um, toward what is unknown. Right. So how do I, and and that thing that's unknown might be a problem. It might be a situation. It could be another person. Uh, and by approaching the mystery of that, uh, with wonder and with curiosity rather than with fear or with the desire for control that usually comes with encountering the unknown, you create space for other people and other perspectives, and you're more likely to learn as well. And that applies so deeply to sales, right? Because if, again, if you're listening to the show and you're in in sale, you're a seller, individual contributors, what Shannon just said is when you're approaching every, I'm sort of extrapolating from what you said, is is you approach 
every new opportunity as a mystery. Yep. And this, as opposed to, wow, this customer fits in a box and they're just like these other customers I've dealt with. Therefore, they're going to have these requirements. And when I ask these questions, these are the answers I'm going to hear. And I'm not really going to go much deeper than that because they look just like everybody else. Yeah, that's right. I and, mean, and it's, but instead of you approach from the point of, well, yeah, there might be some similarities, but they're all unique. There is this mystery about it. I mean, this is what kept me in sales and has kept me in sales for four decades is this every situation is unique. Yeah. That's the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I'm, um, I mentioned earlier that I, we've been thinking about client centricity and what that means for us at box of crayons. And I've been reading, uh, pretty widely on the topic and read recently, Peter Fader, uh, of yeah. Wharton. So yeah, I, I figured you'd be familiar. And he, well, he was on, he was on the show about a year ago. Yeah. Okay. I need to go back and listen yeah. to his, I've, I've now read his book, um, books, plural, but he took, you know, he talks about something you just said, which is that you have first misunderstanding is that there is, you have an ideal customer customer. There are customers plural mm-hmm. and they are different and they are unique. Um, and so that, but that's not a small thing, right? Like every bit of, um, sales training is about mapping out your ideal client, right? Yeah. Where does she shop? How, you know, what are, right. what's her political spectrum? Like it's very, um, limiting. And so to, to just right off the bat say, you know what, you have customers plural, there is not a customer that looks the same, um, uh, is a, is a huge insight. And I think we know it deep down, but then is that showing up in our practices and our training and the way that we think about, um, and the way we think about how we sell. Um, and I love also, I was listening to the curious advantage podcast, um, with Simon Brown. And I always forget the other two, uh, n- names of the other two hosts, but I think it was their very first podcast, uh, or episode. They had a Spanish, academic on talking about the ability for curiosity or for approaching things from a curious mindset to totally dispel fear. And I think about early sales calls I was on where I was mm-hmm. nervous, right? Like, you know, they, oh, yeah. there's like five people on the other side and I'm like, Oh God, who are these people? And, um, and if you, but you know, she had these, this very strong research that if you go into something just from the perspective of this is, I am just here to learn and ask questions and be curious, even, even just kind of like, you know, repeating that as a mantra Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and making that your mindset, you can like feel yourself become less anxious and less nervous. And then you, you perform better. You ask better questions. You, you show up truly more curious, you know, all the good things we just talked about for an hour. Well, I think the fear in sales, oftentimes when you're a salesperson, you're, making a call on a new customer, you know, either in person, video, what have you. I think the fear is, again, I referred to it earlier, is, is that you're going to be discovered as being less than, right? Yes. That you're not going to be, you're not going to be able to answer the question. They're going to think you're dumb. They're going to think you're stupid. And which, first of all, they don't. <laughs> and if you approach from the position as like, I'm there to learn. I'm there to ask questions. I'm there to you have service to them. Yes. Then the fear really dissipates, as she said in her her research, because you don't have your ego at stake anymore. Yeah. 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 That's right. I, I've also found, like in my in my much shorter time selling than than yours, Andy, that people are 
they're not coming to those calls expecting you to know everything. No, like what, like what they're coming is they're curious about the work we're doing with other organizations. They want to know what other people are doing and they're really happy to, to go on and, and talk about themselves when they're asked the kinds of questions that, um, that bring them deeper in, into the insights about what their challenges mm-hmm. are. I think part of my own fear of going into those calls came from having my start in academia where um, there, there was just like a very high bar about be showing up as expert all the time. Um, and so it hadn't occurred to me that people were so much more chilled out <laughs> <laughs> in other aspects of the working world. Um, so that, that was a revelation, but yeah, like uh, people who are interested, uh, in talking to you in the first place, um, want to know, you know, what successes we've had, but they want, they want a thinking partner to, to work through what the challenge is and to get to a solution. They, they're not necessarily looking for you to, to give advice or to solve, to solve problems. They know what we sell. They know we're not going to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line, my belief is that for every sales interaction you have with a potential buyer Mm -hmm. is what they want as a result of the meeting they have with you, the interaction they have with you is at the end of it to be some degree closer to being able to make their decision than they were before you got there. That's right. And that oftentimes, in fact, I would say in my experience and in my sales career, the vast majority of the time they've been moved forward by the questions I ask more so than any fact that I've stated. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I have a great executive coach and the, the questions she asks that bring me to new insight are so, so valuable. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I think it was in the challenger sale when I was reading that a few years ago. Um, I mean, they do focus a lot on the teach, uh, which, which can be done through asking questions. Absolutely. Depending on how you approach that section. But I think the way that they describe the authors of that describe it is that you would want, you want to run a sales call that people would pay for. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I, I think about my own, my, yeah, my own experience being, being coached and just how valuable that is and hope that all of our sales conversations accomplish the same thing that, that they, we ask great questions and help our clients come to insights about what they need and where the challenge is such that they would, they would have paid for that early sales conversation. So here's what you have to do, Shannon. Yeah. What do I have to do next? After your next sales call. Yes. Send your prospect an invoice. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> I'm just so kidding. good, I, such that they would pay for it. <laughs> that they would pay for it. Wow, that was so good. Well, I mean, but it's you don't true. Say. I mean, from from a, from a mindset perspective, absolutely. That's what you. That would be the ideal state, right? Is that that you've helped them think more broadly, more deeply about what their challenges are and the potential outcomes they can achieve. That it. But that's the value you bring as a seller, right? That's right. Is is you don't have to you'll monetize it by getting getting the win. Um, but that's that's what they're looking for. It's it's questions. It's not it's your curiosity that helps them. That's right. And yeah, unfortunately people sort of taken sort of the challenger and said, Well, 
what we're going to do is we're going to prepackage our insights that we're so our sellers have them to be able to, as opposed to making them more organic as they come up through your questions. And I, That's right. I believe the more organic you make them and keep them, and meaning you're in the moment and you're listening to to uh, what's happening and responding based on the information you're hearing, those are stronger than. Uh, yeah, let me, let me pull this challenge out of my backpack. But yeah, um, yeah. Very interesting. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I'm glad we're able finally to do this after, well, it's been more than 12 months. Yeah, maybe. Right, <laughs> Close right, to right, that. Right, before, yeah. right before your son was born. That's right. Um, well, I'm glad that uh, everybody's healthy on your side. And yeah, I you do too. appreciate you joining me. And so if people want to learn more about Box of Crayons or uh, connect with you, how should they do that? Yeah, so... Uh, you can find us at boxofcrayons.com and also connect with us on LinkedIn. Uh, we share articles about curiosity and the organizational outcomes it drives. And we share um, podcasts like this uh, and other cool resources and case studies and work that we're doing with clients to help them unleash the power of curiosity. Perfect. And if you Shannon. want to contact me, I'm Shannon at boxofcrayons.com. Perfect. All right, Shannon, thank you so much. And we'll look forward to doing this again. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Shannon Minifee, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.